Faith at the Fringe, a Sanctuary First podcast series. Uncovering God in the creative arts. At the biggest international arts festival in the world, Sanctuary First stops to ask, where does faith and art meet? Welcome to Faith at the Fringe, a Sanctuary First podcast series, and I'm Albert Bogle, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Pete Sutton, and I'm going to invite Pete to introduce our guest today, because the theme we're going to be looking at is exploring Edinburgh in the context of the festival. Well, thanks, Albert, and I am so delighted to have Ian Rankin with us today. If anyone knows about exploring Edinburgh more than him, I have still got to meet them. Ian finds his inspiration for his incredible series of novels through the streets of Edinburgh. Uh, So firstly, Ian, great to have you here. And thanks. I know you're a very busy man with book festivals and all the rest going on at the moment and also the launch of your new new book. I was chatting with you earlier. The first time I encountered you is you brought your son with you into St Cuthbert's. We had a amazing art installation by the American um, video artist Bill Viola, The Three Women. And if it's all right with you, I'd just like to explore with you what was that experience like for you? It was one of those lovely fringe things where you're just walking past and you think, oh, maybe we can, maybe we'll go and have a look and see if we can see that. And we just timed it perfectly. So as we walked in, you were getting ready to start the latest, um, the, the latest run of the video. Um, and we just, it was 10, 15 minutes, but it was just a kind of nice, quiet, reflective 10 or 15 minutes. It was a beautiful piece of work. Three women, different ages, kind of emerging through a, a, a waterfall, a sheet of water, and silently and slowly, and then retreating back through the waterfall. And, you know, I took a lot from it about the aging process and were these women related? Um, were they friends? Or was it a grandmother, a mother and a daughter? Who was it? Um, it was, it, you know, it, to me it was a very spiritual piece and I hadn't really thought of Bill Viola as a spiritual artist um, before that. I knew him as a video artist, but can he cut an edge? So it was lovely. It wasn't my first trip to St Cuthbert's. I'd been there a few times in the past to stand in the pulpit <laughs> and declaim at, um, at uh, charity Christmas carol nights where you're asked to read a, a favourite bit of, you know, a Christmas poem or something. And that's always fun. I think that was for the, probably for the sick kids hospital. Oh, so that gives me an idea. I think there'll be an invitation coming for this uh, Christmas for a similar reading, if we may. And only if you wish to, have you brought your son with you? Do you remember how he responded to the piece? Oh, he was absolutely blown away by it, and we still talk about it. If we're walking down Lothian Road and we walk past St Cuthbert's Church, he often mentions it. Um, he really is into art uh, and art history, and so a bit not modern, uh, not modern and, uh, and up, you know, contemporary art, really. He's much more interested in Flemish art of the 17th century. <laughs> so it was quite a big deal. Um, but yeah, obviously it had an effect on him, and uh, he's still the, he probably takes me into more churches than most people, to be honest with you, Pete, because we were just in Belgium recently on holiday, and he dragged me to Ghent to see the Ghent altarpiece. And off we went to uh, Antwerp to the cathedral to see the paintings there. Um, and then he went on his own to Leuven to another church to have a look at the art there. Uh, uh, and he's just absolutely fascinated. And of course, if you're interested in art history, the one place you do need to go to in Europe is churches and cathedrals. Yeah, but isn't it a pity that you've got to be interested in art history to, to see 
these, these, these pieces of art. Wouldn't it be great if the church was much more dynamic and were much more open? And the fringe is part of that, inviting people in. But don't, wouldn't it be great to have much more modern exploration of art mm. in, in our buildings? Yeah, and you go into a church in, in, in Scotland or in the UK in general, you walk into any church and there's not much in the way of information on what you're looking at. Um, even if it's a stained glass, you don't, you might not necessarily know which story it's talking about or what the, the writing says because it's written in kind of Germanic script or whatever, and so you can't always make it out. Um, what I did like when we went to Ghent to see the Ghent altarpiece was that the organist was, was in church um, rehearsing, practicing, and was very open to people standing right next to him, asking him questions, talking to them, and then letting him have a shot. So people were getting to try out this extraordinary wow. organ and the sound reverberating around it. And that he, he was a very popular entertainer, I've got to say. And can I just take you back to the Bill Viola piece? And you obviously you saw it in St Cuthbert's, and that's a particular setting. And if we were to take that and you responded, and you used the word spiritual uh, as a response to seeing it, would it still receive a spiritual response if you had just walked into the National Gallery, do you think? Possibly not. I mean, the, the surroundings are definitely part of it. As you walk, you had to walk through the church. You had to walk past all the pews to get to the seats you were going to sit in to watch it. So you were basically getting a tour of the church before you even sat down. And then afterwards, you very graciously told us the story of Agatha Christie being married in the church and showed us a copy of her, birth, her wedding uh, certificate and everything else. Um, so, yeah, it was... It was, it was it was a really good setting. I mean, it made me think, possibly, and I know St Cuthbert's has been really good for this, but it, we should open the churches up more, not just at, at um, festival time, but open up more as places that are, are, you know, people can go in not just to look at the church, but there'll be something happening in there that'll, that'll um, keep them in the church for a bit longer. And, uh, and, you know, as I said, with the organist in Ghent, I just thought, what a great idea. Why isn't that happening in our churches here that you can actually go in and just watch the organist practicing? I mean, we were really encouraged... Sanctuary First, as you know, is an online church for the Church of Scotland. And Pete uh, allowed us to put in one of our art installations in the church just be after Easter, uh, which Jack had actually put together called Windows and the Resurrection. And he'd taken windows out of his own house and they were going to the skip. And instead of going to the skip, Jack painted images of the resurrection on, on, and then a local art group filled them all in. And... Was put on the and you know over a three-day period, I think over a thousand people saw it, mm. and it's just again at a basic level, ordinary people getting involved with the arts and connecting that into church. Mm. So it, it can be highbrow, but it mm. can also be just where people are at in a popular way. And I think what's exciting as well is you know we've touched on art, but obviously having you here, it would be remiss not to talk about literature as well. And um, you mentioned that the Queen of Crime, Agatha Christie was married in the church, so we already have, I suppose, a sense of, you know, crime and, uh, and murder out there already. And uh, Val McDermott got great inspiration a few years ago. I don't know if you remember, she did Message from the Skies, which was based around Susan Ferrier, the Scottish author who's buried in um, St Cuthbert's churchyard. So I know that your latest book includes the word headstones. You know, so when you go into one of these Edinburgh graveyards, are you just thinking of the past, or do you, do you pick up anything living amongst that setting? Well, there are, there are lots of reasons for authors to wander through churchyards and graveyards, and picking up uh, character names is one of them. Um, <laughs> I mean, the guy who invented Taggart, the Scottish cop show on TV, said he got the name from a gravestone in Glasgow. 
Um, uh, so there's that, and then of course the stories, because the, there are every every gravestone has a story behind it. If you look at the dates the person lived, you look at how young or how old they were when they died, sometimes where they died, uh, there are various relations. Maybe if you're looking at older gravestones, you see at what age they lost their children, and often the children were dying very young, and there were lots of them. Or else you've got war. Uh, you, you know, the, uh, we've got a place up in Cromerton as a Commonwealth War Graves um, cemetery up there, and you, you just see the story of these people who went to war and did not come back, which is always always good to re remember. Um, uh, and it's quite a thing, I think, that Commonwealth War Graves are kept. You know, people go and tend them and, and visit them uh, regularly. So there's all of that, and then there's a kind of sense of peace. Um, you step off a busy street and suddenly you're in a very quiet place. Um, there's that. Um, so it's a great place for reflective thought. Um, and it also reminds you of mortality. And I mean, as a crime writer, I'm dealing all the time with mortality, and here it is staring you in the face. You know, you've got three score years and ten, if you're lucky. Um, and not everybody you see in these graveyards got their three score years and ten. Um, and I'm fascinated by the people, I'm fascinated by the stories on the gravestones, and I'm just fascinated by the, the, the process of life and death and the fact that it's around us at every moment. And yesterday we had sitting in your seat one of the gardeners from Princess Street Gardens, who has also done the flower clock, and she very much picked up on what you said, the sense of peace, but she was also so respectful of some of the war memorials in the garden as well, and she was really protective over them. She wasn't pushy with people who weren't meant to be on the grass, but she always liked to remind them this is a respectful place. You should, you know, tread lightly because you're treading on people's lives and their history. So how important do you think it is to still keep on remembering the past rather than allow, others could argue, allowing future generations to embrace the future wholeheartedly without being held back? Yeah, well, I, remembering the past doesn't necessarily hold you back. I think it, that it can actually focus you on what's ahead. I think it's important from that point of view. I mean, for example, war graves makes you think, well, I don't want to be part of any other <laughs> war, thank you very much. Um, there's quite a lot of horror involved in that. Uh, so you're, you, you are remembering, but that remembering is allowing you to maybe focus your mind on what needs to be done in the times ahead to make sure that, that we do live longer, we do live healthier lives, uh, we don't go to war, um, et cetera, et cetera. So from that point, yeah, I do feel like any slight guilt that as a crime writer, of course, my job is to kill people off. Um, and I do keep the body count fairly low in my books, and oftentimes, especially in more recent books, the crime has happened a long time in the past, or years in the past, and has been covered up, or is just about to be uncovered now. Um, but yeah, you know, there are, I think crime fiction, Maybe, I mean, you know, let's go back to Agatha Christie again. I think in the golden age of crime fiction, often the victim was basically just a motor. It was just a part of the engine to get the story going. And the author didn't really focus on the horror of the crime or the effect that the crime had on those that were left behind. And I think more so these days, contemporary crime writers do, the, the victim is never just a victim. It's never just a motor. We do learn a lot about them. Um, there is a kind of look at the family that are left behind, the shock, the, the, and that's what I'm much more interested in is the effect that the crime has on the community and the reasons why the crime happened in the first place. And when you, you talk about you know, mortality and your own mortality as well and dealing so much in death, are you hopeful? Um, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, it's very difficult. I mean, in, in contemporary times, it's very difficult mm. to be 
positive and forward-looking uh, about our chances uh, when the world is heating up, uh, when poverty is ever-present, when people have been decimated by drugs, um, when migration is such an issue, so much war happening everywhere, displacement. Ah, it is, it's hard, but, you know, uh, part of my generation made the mess and the next generation's going to have to clear it up. So um, I probably won't be around. I mean, that's another conversation I have with my son. He's 30. And we're going to have this conversation where he'll go, yeah, thanks, Dad. Um, you know, because it's, it's his generation and a generation after them who are going to have to try and come up with solutions to all of these problems. Um, but it was ever thus. I'm sure the Victorians had the same conversation. Um, we were leaving the place a mess. Uh, we've always, you know, the human race has always kind of stumbled on from one crisis to the next without really seeming to learn the lessons of history. So often you post on Twitter beautiful images of Edinburgh, whether it's looking up at the castle, down the steps. Or the so do you find, going back to that word hope, do you find hope in the beauty that you see in the city of Edinburgh? Is it a, is it a city that instinctively makes people feel hopeful? Um, well, that's a good point, because one of my favourite things to do is to meet someone who's never been to Edinburgh before, meet them off the train perhaps, walk them up to Waverley Bridge from the station, and then, of course, they immediately see the Scott Monument in the castle, uh, and their jaw drops, and it's just a wonderful thing to do, or take them up Calton Hill and just show them the, the city laid out below them, because it is an extraordinary physical place, it's an extraordinary piece of geography. Um, even without human intervention. The fact you've got these extinct volcanoes and stuff in the middle of a city is extraordinary. Um, so, yeah, there is that. It is a place that inspires all. But, I mean, the reason I came to crime fiction in the first place as a very young man was because I'd looked around Edinburgh and saw that it was also a place of great social problems and, and poverty and, and crime, and a lot of it was hidden. Uh, the drug problems in the 80s, the problems with, with um, poverty. I mean, I think I'm right in saying the first work that Oxfam did on UK soil was in Edinburgh um, because there was so much poverty in the schemes that ring the city. But as a tourist or a visitor, you don't see that. So I thought maybe the literature being written now should be flagging this up, that Edinburgh is not just about Greyfriars, Bobby and the castle. It's also about a lot of people who are having a lot of troubles in their lives. And I mean, you know, being people of the church, you know this, you see them, you talk to them. Um, but a lot of people just ignore it. Um, and it's very easy to ignore it when the centre of the city doesn't have visible manifestations of that. A lot of the trouble is, is in, is in the, the schemes which are on the periphery of the city. There's almost been a social cleansing aspect to Edinburgh, and that's going on even now. You know, there's this issue with Airbnbs, where tenement stairwells are almost devoid of community because they're just, you know, half the, the, the flats are Airbnbs that are only used for a few weeks of the year. And the people who come through for a few days or a week or two, of course, have no skin in the game, as we might say. It's interesting you use that word community because um, throughout lockdown, uh, I worked hand in hand with an amazing charity um, called Steps to Hope. And we were the only church in the whole of Edinburgh that was allowed to stay open, not because the Church of Scotland, whose offices we're in here, they told me, you've got to shut your doors and, Peter, you've got to stay in your manse. Steps to Hope went to the council and said, what are you going to do? We feed at St Cuthbert's 150 people every Sunday night. And they said, carry on and do it. And so I was able to say, I want to become a volunteer at Steps to Hope. So I just became a key holder on a Sunday for Steps to Hope, opening up my own church, not as a minister, but the, commun the sense of community there and you mentioned the, most of the, the good guests we look after are 
associated with addiction, mm. as indeed are many of the volunteers who serve them these days. So, so within community, where do you think there are good signs of community in Edinburgh? Um, usually it's, you know, small local charities, it's usually one person with a good idea. I'll give you an example of that. There was a woman who used to wander up and down George Street and, and, and other bits of Edinburgh, and she would stop and talk to homeless people. And one of them said to her one day, I would, you know, you know what, if you were offering me food or books, I would take a book. Um, and she started to gather together books and then just hand them out. And she would talk to homeless people and say, what kind of books do you like? Or what do you like to read? What do you like to do? Somebody might just want to do crossword puzzles. Somebody might not be very literate and wants comics or graphic novels. Um, and she started this and it became known as Street Reads. Um, and, and Streetworks, another charity, took it on and they now have a library and a drop-in centre in, uh, I think, St. Pat no, is it St. Patrick's Square? Somewhere central in Edinburgh, anyway, um, in the basement. Uh, they've got a, a drop-in centre for homeless people and they can go and pick up books there, take books back. You can get them in any language because what happens is readers and authors will just drop foreign language editions of books in there. And that was just one woman. Oh. And eventually it was one woman and a bike. And then she got a little buggy to put in the back of the bike. And then she got two other guys to help her. And they had bikes as well. And then it just grew and grew and grew from one, tiny, from one person who had an inspired idea. And I think those things, small local charities, I've got a chari um, charitable trust that I, my wife and I run. And we'd much prefer giving smaller amounts to small local organizations with good ideas than to give big chunks of money to very big charities where it just seems to disappear into a pool of bureaucracy. And from that point you said there, I mean, obviously the, the personal, the relationship is vital in, you know, reaching out to help others and also just engaging with others. It's, it is ultimately face-to-face, -face, isn't it? Knowing the person and knowing their story and having time to listen to their, their story. Yeah, and in the, early Reb in the early Rebus novels, Rebus has a, a, a kind of, you know, a cadre of um, uh, people who are his snitches or people he talks to, and one or two of them are homeless people um, who might just keep an ear out to what's happening on the street or where problems are or what's, who's behind the problems. And I just was absolutely fascinated by that, this notion that detectives back in the old days <laughs> doesn't happen so much now, we'd have these, what they call, uh, what's it called, covert human, uh, human intelligence. Uh, so human intelligence is what they now call it, snitches, grasses. Yeah. Um, contacts, as Rebus would say. Somebody would just buy them a drink or give them a sandwich and they would say, you know, so-and-so got stabbed last week, I think this guy knows who did it. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, and that was because I was speaking to cops and cops told me that they did have that. They, they used to, you know, not pound a street necessarily, but they would, they would have, um, they would be streetwise in a way that I don't think police officers are these days, sitting at their desks with their computers like everybody else. And when um, you look at, you said you delve back in the past in your crimes, does religion often feature as a factor of a crime, mm. would you say? Is that, people talk about, you know, the, the burden of how you were brought up or your association with the church as an institution. Does that, is that out there as well? I'll tell you what I did do in the early books. It's not quite answering your question, mm. but it may be in a roundabout way it is. In the early books, Rebus is is on a quest. He's on a quest for, for, for certainty. He's looking for answers, and not just in his job, but actually in his personal life as well, and that extends to religion. And he goes to different churches every week. He'll go to pick a different church and just sit there and try and understand what's going on and try and get an answer. And he became friendly with a priest uh, in some of the early books, and he would sit late at night and he would drink Guinness 
um, and talk about religion and and big moral questions. Because what the what the crime novel does at its heart is pose a very big moral question, which is why do we human beings continue to do terrible things? Um, and is it good and evil? Do good and evil exist? Is there a spectrum? What makes people do bad things? And I've been able to investigate this, not just through the books, but through a lot of the research that I've done for the books and elsewhere. I mean, I presented a TV series for Channel 4 years ago on evil, where I was, I was exorcised by um, the chief exorcist of the Diocese of Rome, um, Father Gabriel Amort. Um, and, you know, and we, we delved deep into why people do these terrible things. Uh, and at the end of the process, I wasn't much further forward. I could point to an act and say that is an act of evil, but to point to an individual and say, you are irredeemably evil, I found much, much harder. A fascinating, sorry, fa just very quick, pick up on this. Fascinated that you chose to place Rebus in a church on a regular basis. That must have been obviously a conscious decision. And again, personal question, and feel free to not pick up on it. But is that something that you gave to Rebus because it's something you'd done yourself? It's something I gave to Rebus because, yeah, because I was, I was asking these questions of myself, definitely. I mean, not necessarily going to lots of different churches, but certainly reading up on different religions um, and, 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 you know, trying to come to some conclusions. Uh, yeah, you know what? I mean, I was brought up in a church. I was brought up in Church of Scotland, and then at the age of 12, I think, I used to go to Sunday school and all that, and perfect attendance, and you get given a book. Uh, and then at the age of 12, I think, my mum my and my sister, older sister, used to go... My dad didn't. He, my mum said, right, you can, you're can. you old enough now. You make a decision. Do you want to keep coming with us or do you want to stay at home with your dad? And I thought, extra half hour in bed, I'll stay home and, uh, with dad. And that was pretty much the end of that. Um, until it came time to get married and I was a student at Edinburgh University. And so I went to the, the chaplain at uh, Edinburgh University and said, can we get married in Greyfriars Kirk, which is the university church? Um, and he said, well, bring your, 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 your future wife in. And, and he grilled us. He grilled us. I was expecting it just to be, uh, Church of Scotland, yeah, no problem, pal, just come in. No, 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 it was about your spiritual experience, do you believe in God, all, and we were, and a pair of us hadn't really discussed that before, of course, boyfriend and girlfriend. So that was a beginning of a kind of journey, aged about 20, that had been 25 then. Um, and it was at the same time as I was starting to write these books about this guy Rebus, a very complex character with a lot of darkness um, within him. Um, and so, yeah, so he did continue that journey for me. And interesting, you obviously passed the test with the chaplain, you know, <laughs> flying colours. Yeah. And Albert's more of the generation that remember Sunday schools than me. So I'm, yeah. I know he had a question coming up. Right. No, I was just thinking there, you were talking about um, that journey of faith when you, when you were a younger man. And then as you walk through the graveyard and you see and you hear that text, you see it in every, almost every gravestone. I am the resurrection, I am the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. It gets me thinking, you know, we talked to, there was a bit in our podcast where we went to quite a low part when we were talking just about hope and where will we see hope with all the wars and everything that's going on in the world. And I, my spirit within me couldn't help thinking, because I believe in the resurrection, I've got hope. But do you know something, Ian? It's more than that. It's, I'm told, to, and I start thinking, if I believe in this resurrection, I've got to live that resurrection life today. And so Christianity is not about pie in the sky when we die. It's got to be about taking something that we passionately believe in and then saying, there can be a different world. We can make a difference in the world. And I think 
sometimes as church we don't get that message mm. out to people at all. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, that comes back to something I was saying earlier about, you know, one person with a good idea who just gets involved, who just does, I'm going to do something. A lot of us just sit there and shake our heads at the news and we go, what can we do? We're just a very small, tiny piece of this machinery. Um, but you can't, but you know, small steps. You can, mm. A few small steps can be the beginning of something amazing. Absolutely. Uh, but it, it just takes, it takes one person or it takes a few people just to decide, right, we're going to give this a go. And then hopefully they persuade other people to go with them. Can I ask you another question as a Glaswegian? You walk the streets of Edinburgh, <clears throat> but how did you get on when you were throwing the William McIlvenny novel to finish? <laughs> That must have been a challenge. It was a huge challenge. It was during lockdown and his publisher came to me and said, look, we've been given a couple of, 150 pages of notes from William McIlvany's widow, uh, a, a book that he was going to write, but then he died. And can you have a look and see if you think it could make a, a, a physical book? Is there enough there to make a physical book? And I looked at it and there wasn't a lot. I mean, there were little scraps of paper. There were asides, political musings, all kinds of things in there. Um, but there was a kind of there was a core of a story. There was a the, the kind of the spine of a story, and I thought, okay, you could do this. And I had nothing else to do because it was lockdown. Um, and it was 19, The book was set in 1972 Glasgow, and I thought, well, I'd never been to Glasgow in 1972. But luckily, I was able to get to the National Library of Scotland and get the Glasgow Herald newspapers for 1972, and acquaint myself with the city to that extent, and then get maps. Um, and also I had a network of friends who'd grown up in Glasgow who I was able to ask questions of. Um, and, you know, the lovely thing was, I mean, I wrote it as a homage, and I thought, if people see me in this book, then I failed. I really want this to be William McIlvany's world and story. And when the book was presented to his widow, Siobhan, she wrote me a lovely handwritten letter, and she said, Ian, you gave him back to me. The oh. weekend I was reading that book, I could hear his voice in the room with me, and I couldn't see the join. She said, I could not see where it stopped being Willie and started to be you. And I thought, well, that's job done. Job done. If nobody else likes it, I'm happy. That's a tremendous see, accolade in itself, isn't it? Just to have done that. Yeah, I mean, I did make a few mistakes, but luckily they were picked up by friends of mine who live in Glasgow. Gang terminology. Right. Why gangs were called what they were in the 70s and stuff like that. Um, and I was, you know, I didn't mention places unless Willie had mentioned them in his other books, so I knew that they were right. And I, I read and reread and reread his books to try and get the rhythms of his voice to make sure it was a proper act of ventriloquism. But it was a homage. I mean, he was a guy I owed a lot to. He was a, a literary novelist, literary writer who turned to crime for a few books and made it okay to write crime fiction, in my mind. If William McIlvany is writing crime fiction, there's nothing wrong with crime fiction. It is not, it is not a lesser child. Well, I mean, that's a story of resurrection in some way, isn't it? Uh, uh, to come back uh, to saying, you know, his widow would say, you, you gave him back to me, you know. And uh, I, I think that's something that... I, I think I'm trying, as a minister of the gospel, to try and hear the voice of God speaking through us, that people can find their way back to faith, you know, and art and explorations like this and stories like this can be the beginning of a journey for people to uh, connect with the, the, the God that we believe as Christians and loves us, cares for the created. Uh, you know, and that lovely bit in the Bible which says, when God created the world, he saw it was good. Mm. You know, and too often as mm. Presbyterians, we've been very good at talking about the original sin of everyone, but we don't talk about the goodness that God his plans for the world is. Albert, what I like that you mentioned a minute ago was it's not pie in the sky. And although I think you can concentrate on the resurrection, I would go back to your son seeing a 
painting of the crucifixion, because I don't think you get, and that is a, could, you could argue, the greatest crime against humanity. If mm. you look at it, mm. an innocent person put up on a cross and, you know, executed, uh, murdered. But then I don't think you get resurrection without stopping at the foot of the cross in a, in a sense of seeing it as a crime and asking what was our role within that crime. And today our role in that crime is probably ignoring, you know, the good homeless folk who are out there or just passing them by or not making the effort or not being interested in creating community or face-to-face -face relationships. Because I don't think... You, you couldn't just have a picture of the resurrection without the crucifixion, would mm. be my thought. Yeah. You've got to remember that you're sitting in front of someone who occasionally glibly says that he is God. I mean, I, you know, when I'm doing talks, I'll say when I'm sitting down writing a novel, I am God. I have the power of life and death over all these characters. I have complete control mm. of this world. I create this world and I control this world and everything in it. I mean, uh, that is godlike. It's godlike and it's an extraordinary sort of power to have over... You know, and people get upset. They go, oh, you killed so-and-so. I didn't like that. Or they died, you know, they, I, I wanted them to live. I wanted them to keep going. You go, well, tough. You know, um, even, even, my, even my priest in the books eventually died, although not, not in a terrible way. He just fell. Um, it was an accidental death. Um, but, yeah, so we do think about that a lot. But it's, in crime fiction, of course, we're looking a lot at absolutes. We're looking at good and evil. We're looking at monsters and, and heroes. Um, and it does come back to that old, it's a very old, can be a very Old Testament style of writing, and especially with, from a Scottish perspective, you know, the, the books I, I hark back to as kind of ur texts would be things like Jekyll and Hyde and Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner, which is the first serial killer novel that I'm aware of, and it's about a Presbyterian mm -hmm. who has been told by a charismatic stranger that he's going to go to heaven whatever he does on earth, therefore he starts killing people. And you're never sure if the charismatic stranger is a psychopath or the devil mm. um, or a figment of his fevered imagination. And when the crime gets solved, do you see it as bringing closure? And with that, uh, go back to this word hope, does it present anyone with hope? Yes, I mean, that's a good question because I think, again, with the early crime fiction, the Agatha Christie style, it was like the ending was everything's wrapped up, all your questions have been answered, the bad person's been put in jail, hurrah, normality. Uh, it's like at the end of a Shakespearean comedy, everything's been shaken up, but at the end, order is restored. Modern crime fiction, not so much. Modern crime fiction, often we, we know that because you've put one bad person in jail doesn't mean to say that crime goes away or these things are going to stop happening. Um, it's much more complex than that. The world is never going to go back to normal if somebody's been murdered. For many, many people around them, it's never, ever going to go back to normal. So there is that sense that, 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 that no, they're, 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 this is not a happy ending. It's, um, it's a continuum. It's, it's just, you know, because you've solved one problem, there's another problem coming along. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, readers, I think, are fine with that. They're fine with open endings or more open endings. Or I remember being absolutely astonished. I was a big fan of The Sweeney when I was a kid. And I remember watching an episode of The Sweeney with my dad. And at the end, the bad guy got away with it. And I'd never seen that in a cop show before. The bad guy w didn't get caught. And I just thought, what, really? Um, and that stuck with me. That stuck with me. Sometimes the baddies do not get caught or punished. And in a way, I mean, going back to Albert's introduction and the sense of faith at the fringe, I think faith is often open-ended if it's going to be a, a real faith, isn't it? Because mm. and if you make it a certainty, there's no point in having it. It's got to be open to surprises, new encounters, new ways of seeing things and re-evaluating things as well. And I guess in people's lives, the, family, the, vic yeah, the families you know, around the victim, there must be just so many different ways of seeing life 
when presented with, you know, that knock on the door or... Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think it, it knocks a lot of people, doesn't it? I mean, if you've got spiritual faith and then someone close to you is brutally murdered, you go, well, why? Um, it's, you know, it's very hard to square with your with your religious mm. beliefs. I mean, uh, the, uh, there's no doubt in that. Or when something terrible happens to a family, you know, they go, that makes them question uh, what kind of world they're living in. Is, is it a spiritual world? Um, uh, or isn't it? You know, I mean, in some ways, the human being has only come a few steps from the cave. We're just as feral in many ways as we ever were. Um, and uh, we have to recognize that, I think. We have to recognize that that, um, that everybody is capable of doing terrible things as well as great things. Do you know, I think it's a great place to end this, the, the podcast because it brings us right into the psalmists. So if you want to take that and explore that more, read any psalm because the psalmists begin to say, oh God, why does bad things happen to good people? And, and that's one of the great explorations through the Psalms. And so we want to thank you for being with us today, Ian. We, we've, we've had a great conversation. Thank you too to you, uh, Pete, for being with us and uh, to opening that conversation. We've, 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 we've gone a long journey. We've gone around the houses, but we've got back and ended up with this deep theological issue. Why do good, bad things happen to good people? And we'll be continually asking that, I guess, until we get to eternity. But listen, one of the things we do is we, every, at the end of every podcast, we want to thank you for looking in and being part of us and for sharing in these podcasts. And also, we always just thought it'd be nice to say a blessing on everyone, and especially on you, the viewer or the listener. So we say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you his peace in the midst of all your questions and struggles. Amen. Amen.